Um, so I'm going to uh, explore further the uh, practice of what is this that Martin introduced uh, yesterday morning. Now I know some of you are quite familiar with this practice and so um, we'll probably have heard a lot of this before. If you're entirely new to this uh, approach, it, it might feel a little strange if you're used to just doing, uh, say, Vipassana meditation. Uh, one of the difficulties people find uh, on beginning uh, this questioning is that it reintroduces words, thoughts. What is this? It's a, it's a phrase. And that can often uh, trigger um, a whole cascade of other thoughts, uh, which is hardly surprising, really. And it might take some time before you become sufficiently familiar or comfortable with it for that automatic, reactive thinking to just die down. Uh, the, 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 the nature of this question um, is actually... Um, well, actually, it's kind of an impossible question, really. There really isn't an answer. And yet we're conditioned through our culture, through our upbringing, through our education, that when we're posed a question, then we are supposed to give the answer. And sometimes in uh, Zen practice too, uh, particularly in the Japanese forms of uh, Rinzai Zen, you go through what's called koan training and you pass one koan and you go on to the next. In Korea and in China that's not actually done. Um, the purpose of the question or the koan um, is to cultivate a quality of what is called doubt. We prefer to use the word uh, perplexity or puzzlement or bewilderment even. Uh, unknowing um, and we could even extend it into ideas like uh, a sense of mystery a sense of wonder, a sense of awe uh, a sense of the sublime even so um, the, the point is not actually to arrive at an answer and it might take a little time to somehow uh, sort of burn off that habit until we just become more interested in the quality of questioning itself. I'd like to um, start by going back to the uh, episode that's recorded in the uh, Chan Zen tradition uh, that uh, first mentions this particular question. And it's an occasion that um, involves two monks, one of whom is well known, a Huineng, or Ino in Japanese, who's the sixth patriarch uh, of the Chan tradition. The other monk is a much uh, less well-known figure called Huai Zhang. And um, he's the student. He's been living up in the north of China on Mount Song, which is above the Yangtze, near the city of Luoyang. 
he hears about this meditation teacher down in the, the far south uh, called Hui Neng, who lives not far from the, the modern Chinese city of Guangzhou, or Canton. So he walks all the way, um, which would have taken him quite some time. It's a long journey. And when he gets to Hui Neng's monastery, he's uh, invited into the teacher's uh, apartment and uh, is welcomed. And Hui Neng says, um, Oh, where have you come from then? And Hui Zhang replies, I've come from Mount Song. And then Hui Neng asks, But what is this thing? And how did it get here? to which Huai Zhang was speechless. The text then says, Huai Zhang spent eight years in the monastery. And the next sentence says, um, he then had uh, uh, an understanding, and he went back to the teacher, Hui Neng, and says, I've understood something. And Hui Neng says, what is it? And Wei Zhang replies, well, to say it's like something misses the point. End of story. Now, this has all of the usual, rather quirky characteristics of a koan. The koan actually refers to the whole story. Koan in, or kungan in Chinese literally means a public case. It's a legal term. And it refers to uh, previous court cases, difficult ones, where a judge has made a certain decision, and that becomes a point of reference in case law, like we have in Britain. And so, in other words, you refer back to these cases in order to get a sort of orientation or direction to the present case in law. But transferred to the context of meditation practice, the present case is actually what you're undergoing in this moment. And in that sense, um, your life is the question that is uh, under examination, the case at hand, we might say. And as it would be in, in, in a legal setting, um, the previous cases um, are not you don't just uh, repeat the judgment that you gave in Brown versus Brown 1952, but you use that as an orientation or a kind of a guide guidance to get a bearing on the current case at hand. And the current case is going to be unique. And I think it's important, in fact, to acknowledge the precedent uh, in, in, in the legal language that every criminal case, every court case will be specific and unique uh, to that occasion. No two cases will ever be the same. And so although we have in the koan, in the case itself, what we might call an answer, Hui Zhang saying, to say it is like something misses the point, we have to bear in mind that's not my answer or your answer, that's Hui Zhang's answer 1,200 years ago. It might be helpful, might give you a pointer, but it's not actually going to be sufficient 
just to sort of take that on board and say, oh, okay, to say this like something's not to the point. Right, done that, next one. Doesn't work like that, I'm afraid. The important point um, is to connect to the visceral quality of the questioning itself. And so if we go back to the beginning of the, of the Kungan, um, we start with what is a fairly innocuous uh, social conversation. Where have you come from? I've come from Mount Song. What Hui Zhang, the young monk, is probably unprepared for is that Hui Nang is just about to basically change the rules of the game. Instead of saying, oh, you've come from Mount Song. Well, how is, you know, Joe Monk doing that? Oh, he's fine. I knew Joe when we were young monks. That's how the conventional conversation might have proceeded. But instead, uh, Hui Nang says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? And you can put the emphasis on the words as you like. And that sort of throws Hui Zhang into probably a quite uncomfortable kind of, um, of confusion. It's a bit like if you were at a dinner party and you're sitting next to somebody you don't know and you're talking about, you know, well, I'm, and, and who are you? Oh, I'm Stephen. And what do you do? Oh, I write books. And where do you live? Oh, I live here. And as this sort of is going merrily along, uh, suddenly the person next to you says, but Stephen, who are you really? (laughs) Now, fortunately, this doesn't happen very often. (laughs) But if it did, we can probably imagine that we would feel kind of uncomfortable. We'd think such a comment to be really rather inappropriate for the occasion. uh, And we probably wouldn't quite know what to say. And I suspect that that something similar happened to Huai Zhang. But it must have struck him with sufficient force. And remember, we're not at a dinner party, we're at a Buddhist monastery, so perhaps this kind of um, shifting of the rules is a little bit more acceptable. But nonetheless, uh, he found himself um, confronted with with the question of his own existence. And he didn't have an answer to that. And so he stays in the monastery for eight years. It doesn't say what he did. It doesn't mention him going and meditating for ten hours a day. Um, But whatever he did, one assumes that it was somehow uh, a, a contemplation or a pondering or a struggling with this question of his existence. And I suspect much as when we do such practice, he would have gone through a similar sort of process, uh, possibly initially coming up with all kinds of answers, uh, perhaps very clever, zen-like answers, nice and paradoxical and quirky and so on. But at a certain point, that would have burnt itself out, and he would have just been left contemplating the question of his own life. And that's what um, is essentially the nature of this practice. Um, 
We find it helpful, and again, it may have been the case also in ancient China, uh, to ground this questioning in a, a basic practice of knowing how to sit, um, being uh, concentrated on the breath or whatever object one might have used, uh, to develop a certain inner calm, a certain clarity of attention, and then to bring into that calm and clarity this uh, puzzling uh, inquiry. What is this? And again, you can accent it where you like. What is this? What is this? What is this? You can play with that. But frankly, that also isn't going to get you very far. (laughs) At a certain point, you need to actually let go of the, the, the words altogether. And to that regard, to think of the, the phrasing um, as really just a sort of springboard, uh, a starting point, uh, uh, a trigger, let's say, that slowly begins to uh, provoke uh, or nurture, if we want a more, a more, more gentle language, um, a sensation of puzzlement. And they use this word, sensation. And they often say that this sensation is uh, is very much felt in the body. One passage that I'm particularly fond of in another Chinese text says that you must question with the marrow of your bones and with the pores of your skin. Now again... We don't take that literally, but we probably know what that means. It's not the sort of questioning that is a purely cerebral or intellectual inquiry, but rather it's a questioning that that seizes the whole of you. It uh, has a kind of an urgency about it, uh, which we would consider perhaps visceral. And it's, I think, uh, comparable to the kind of questioning that must have uh, struck the young Siddhartha, the Siddhartha Gautama, when he leaves, according to the legend, the safety of his, his luxurious existence, goes outside the palace walls, as the story says, and encounters a sick person, an aging person, a corpse. And on each occasion... Uh, is woken up in a way to the question of his own life that he too will get sick, will get old and will die. And that's the, the real uh, kung up. It's the question of the fact that I've been born, I'll break down and I'll die. In other words, the basic existential condition of being human. And when in our own lives, completely outside anything to do with Buddhism or Zen or whatever, we find ourselves in such situations, either when we get very sick or we're um, grieving for a close friend, relative, 
partner who has died. Life is somehow transformed from a, you know, just an ongoing concern with what I'm going to be doing for the rest of the day and next week and next year and da-da-da and is replaced by this um, uh, silent uh, um, uh, perplexity and awe and confusion and fear around the fact of my own birth and death. And there's something quite powerful, quite moving about, let's say, um, bereavement or being with someone like an aged parent who's dying or experiencing extreme pain or sickness or an accident. Your whole world often is turned upside down. Your priorities are shaken up. You can no longer just content yourself with getting through the business of the day with... um, you know, all of the petty concerns that you have with your neighbours and so on. That something greater takes hold of your, of your life, really. So it's that kind of questioning that we're seeking to <coughs> awaken through this practice. There can, I think, in some ways uh, be something a little contrived and artificial because let's, you know, we're not sick, we're not necessarily particularly old, we're not you know, dying, at least not um, in any sort of palpable way. So sometimes you, you, you pose this question, perhaps with great earnestness, but it just kind of falls flat. <coughs> what is this? You know, nothing happens. Uh, And so this, like most of these meditations uh, that we find in Buddhism, it requires a certain training, it requires a certain patience, it requires a certain discipline, um, a certain persistence, a certain commitment to just sort of keep working at it. One of the images that I've always liked but found a little bit troubling, um, I forget where it comes from, uh, it says you should, um, you should work on your question like as if you were chewing an, an iron rod. Which is uh, But I think it captures something of the quality of the questioning again. Um, there's something, you, something impossible about it. You can't chew an iron rod. So when you find yourself struggling or working with these kinds of questions, um, you're actually working on something that you probably know you'll not solve in any conventional way. But at the same time, it becomes a question of such urgency that you can't let go of it either. And all of us, I think, probably, we wouldn't be here doing these retreats if we hadn't had something in our lives comparable to such uh, moments. So, as we work with this questioning, what we're really, I think, trying to um, uh, arouse is... um, 
a kind of a kind of felt sense, an embodied uh, feeling of a particular kind of um, bewilderment. Uh, we're trying to wake up to the fact that life is an extraordinarily strange thing. Extraordinarily strange. We take it for granted and we find it maybe uninteresting or boring. And we lose sight so easily um, of how uh, unusual, how unique, how exceptional it is to be here at all. Even from a scientific or biological point of view, it's taken millions of years to evolve uh, the kind of uh, complex thinking organism and highly uh, uh, evolved brain that we humans uh, enjoy. You know, millions of years it's taken to get here and, you know, we're kind of disinterested. <laughs> We'd rather be doing something more fun like watching a football match or something. Uh, and so it's, it's really to try to somehow... Um, suspend our habitual monologue of uh, concern which as I mentioned last night is basically just an endless litany of things about me and to try to step back from that and consider the fact that I am here at all in this body, with this mind, with these emotions, with these feelings with this nexus of relationships in which I'm embedded the fact that that is going on. Now, in terms of uh, some of the points that uh, we discussed last night, um, there's a certain aridity in uh, the convictions we have about who we are and what we want and what we like and how important we are, and so on and so forth. And this, it seems, is again probably a biological survival strategy that gives us a certain security in what is inevitably a highly insecure world. But the advantages that such a sense of constancy and permanence and me provide... Um, are at the same time uh, uh, we need to contrast with the um, with the negative side, namely that such uh, certainty and solidity and meanness uh, has the effect of cutting us off from everything else. It is very reductive. It reduces our life to basically the narrative in our head and our day-to-day activities that need to get done and yet we sometimes then have the rather disconcerting feeling that we're missing out on something and I think what perhaps we're missing out on is our capacity to experience our life as a mystery rather than a set of more or less interesting facts so this notion of aridity, this dryness, this barrenness, 
um, which the Buddha described as being centered around what I want, what I don't like, and my general kind of egotistic or narcissistic concern, is felt to be somehow um, disabling of what we might uh, be able to uh, achieve could we release or discover within us uh, a source of a more flourishing, uh, flowing, stream-like life. So in practical terms, leaving aside all of this background, I would suggest that you don't ask this question very often. That you bring it into your meditation, um, whether that's on the breath or on the body or whatever you do, when the mind achieves a certain poise and stillness and sharpness. And in that quiet, still centre, gently ask, What is this? And perhaps of even more importance, um, allowing yourself to just wait and listen to whatever response may or may not occur. To allow yourself to somehow just sit in the aftermath of the posing of that question. And to somehow feel that questioning uh, in your bones, as it were. And to try to turn your attention towards uh, what it feels like to be curious, to be puzzled, to be confused, to be wondering, rather than to revert to our habitual default model oh, that's an interesting question, now that must mean this, or didn't they say in that text this, or what would Wittgenstein have said, or something like that. That's really beside the point. But that's a very hard habit to override. And in some ways, you know, you can't force it. You have to also, I think, treat this practice with a degree of self-regarding irony, and watch yourself as you go through these rather familiar motions. But at a certain point, I feel, maybe not at a certain point, but over time, um, you may find that you can just come to rest, paradoxically, in this sense of perplexity. Such that perplexity or questioning, whatever, is no longer structured around a particular phrase, like, what is this? But it becomes more a sort of feeling or a sensation that begins to infuse your experience as a whole. And this, I think, is, is becomes sort of noticed, maybe not when you're sitting in the room doing the actual formal practice, but often when you go outside, when you... Uh, sit eating your meal um, that in a strange way um, you're allowing the world to become less obvious 
You're allowing yourself to experience um, the oddity of what's going on, uh, the uniqueness of each moment. Very difficult to put into words. <clears throat> Arguably, um, those who articulate these kinds of feelings and intuitions most effectively are poets. And I think all poetry, whether it's you know, irrespective of you know, whether it's Chinese or Christian or Rumi or whoever, the poets, I think, have a, um, a gift of language that enables them, in a sense, to, um, uh, to employ words and verbs and imagery, um, not in a crudely descriptive way, but in a way that somehow uh, is, 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 is evocative, um, that um, almost magically, it seems sometimes, uh, induces within us uh, this, this uh, acute sense of uh, wonder at the fact of the world being there at all. And again, it's important, I think, in in Zen meditation, um, to move away from any tendency towards abstraction or theory and or, or opinions or views, as we spoke of last night, and to um, focus or return to uh, the everyday, the everyday objects. And many of the Zen koans um, uh, turn the question back to something um, right in front of the questioner's eyes. So, for example, you often get a, a monk goes to the teacher and says, you know, why did Bodhidharma come from the West to here? And one famous answer, quote-unquote, to that, this is from Zhao uh, Jue, is uh, the cypress tree in the courtyard. Um, another answer is, uh, three pounds of flax. And uh, one of my favourite answers is from Yun Men, who when he's asked, what is the highest teaching of the Buddhas and the patriarchs, says, cake. <laughs> <laughs> now, in each case, um, the, the question is completely subverted. Uh, which is a question, usually these questions are the typical kind of religious or philosophical type things. And the questioner's attention is returned to the tree out there in the courtyard, a pile of flax, probably they're working, preparing flax in the monastery, or simply a piece of food on the table. And that, I think, is a very good pointer when you find your mind wandering off into abstraction, come back to your breath, come back to the sound of the rooks, come back to um, the, the rather annoying pain in your lower back, return to the mottled shade of the carpet in front of you. Just keep coming back. And in this sense, it's very similar to the practice of mindfulness, the practice of awareness. It's about coming back returning to what is actually happening here and now. But the, 
the element that Zen practice brings is this uh, element of, of perplexity or puzzlement or inquiry, a certain urgency. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.